This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Okay, so today I want to begin to explore uh, the area of, I'm going to use the word, faith and insight. Uh, insight is the word that we usually associate with seeing through, going beyond the self. Uh, you know, the arising of wisdom, not just the development of positive qualities and calm, but the actual sort of penetrating through to reality. But I want to explore it in uh, a way that sort of fits with the language we've been using this week. Insight, as I, I think I mentioned maybe on the first day, insight's a particular uh, term, a particular kind of language. Uh, it's using perceptual metaphor for whatever this decisive step is where we actually you know, begin to come into a uh, closer relationship, closer understanding with reality. But it, you know, it's, a, it's a visual metaphor to see into, to see deeply. Vipassana is the traditional term it's translating. But I want to suggest other ways we can actually uh, explore the, the territory of self-transcendence. That's what I'm going to talk about it in terms of self-transcendence rather than insight. <coughs> Um, <clears throat> in a way, if we're going to be transcending the self, we need to understand a little bit about what it is, what this self is that we're transcending. Yeah? Uh, the traditional terms are atta, A-T-T-A, for the self, and then the Buddhist teaching is the teaching of anatta, uh, sort of literally no self. Sangharakshita in his teachings generally prefers to translate it as no fixed self rather than just no self. Presumably he wants to avoid the implications of a kind of nihilism, that there's nothing. Uh, clearly there is, you know, the Buddha still has personality. He's a distinctive individual being after his enlightenment. It's not just a sort of a blank nothingness. So yeah, I think Sangharakshita in choosing to t- translate it generally in terms of no fixed self is trying to avoid that tendency to, that we might have if there are underlying nihilistic views that, oh, it's all a bit bleak. There's nothing there when you, you see through it. Uh, in a way, the, one of the definitive teachings about Anatar is what's supposedly, or at least what the tradition ascribes, is the second teaching of the Buddha. So uh, we've got Dharma Day coming up. Dharma Day is the celebration on the full moon two months after the Buddha's enlightenment, usually falls in July, where we celebrate the first turning of the wheel of the Dharma. And tradition ascribes the Buddha to have taught to his five former ascetic disciples or friends uh, he taught them a middle way between, it's an ethical middle way, 
or a behavioural middle way rather than a metaphysical one between sensual indulgence and uh, ascetic suppression of the self. And then he teaches them the four noble truths and the eightfold path as the fourth of those truths. And traditionally they're said to have gained stream entry. They're, made, they're said to have made some irreversible breakthrough uh, upon hearing that teaching. Subsequent to that, he taught the Anatta Lakana Sutta, the mark of no self sutta. Yeah? So this is the kind of definitive expression in the early texts, at least, of what no self is. Uh, and on teaching them no self uh, and exploring them and getting them to see that, they attained to full arahantship, enlightenment. Yeah, that's how the tradition talks of it. But in the Anatta Lakana Sutta, the Buddha gives two arguments, you might say, for not self, for Anatta, for no fixed self. One of them is the one that we're probably quite familiar with, which is that there's nothing permanent in our experience. Yeah? Uh, and because there's nothing permanent, we can't, you know, it's, well, it's denying that the self is some permanent fixed entity that remains unchanged through our lives and that passes unchanged between lives. You know, he's denying that. And I think the language of insight kind of lends itself to this aspect of the, the Anatar Lakana, the mark of not-self, just seeing through the permanence of the self, you know, our, our attachment to the permanence of you see through that to the fact that there's nothing permanent in our experience. It's just a changing process dependent upon conditions. But the Buddha also gives another argument in this sutta, and his other argument is that we don't have control over the self. Yeah? What he actually says is, uh, you know, he's saying this to the five uh, former friends uh, or friends who are former ascetic practitioners with him. He says to them, you know, can you say, may my form, he goes through, the, these are the five skandhas, so it's Buddhist technical language. He goes through the five scans and says, you know, can you say, may my form be such and such, and it will be such and such. May my feeling be such and such, and it will be such and such. May my perceptions, may my volitions, may my consciousness. Uh, have you got control over the five scandals of your experience? Can you turn them into something through just wanting to turn them into something? And uh, in investigation of this with these five friends of his, uh, it comes to the conclusion, well, no, you don't actually have control. Uh, I think there's a, we need to avoid going to the extreme of we, don't, we can't influence, but we certainly don't have control. You can't just say, may my body be such and such, may my feelings be such, or may, you know, may I experience great bliss. And well, no, it doesn't happen like that, does it? You don't have control in that literal way. So there's an aspect of, uh, in, a, in a way, understanding this teaching of anatta or going beyond self, which is about uh, losing or letting go of control of your experience. Or, or in a way, it's actually realising that you didn't have it in the first place. 
So a lot of the time our energy, well we have a view that we can directly influence and control things and we have, uh, we, we invest quite a bit of our energy in trying to control ourselves and the world around us. Uh, so the Buddha is saying that actually that's a fiction and we can stop doing that. Yeah. Um, I'm going to read you a poem of Sangharakshita's which I think gives very eloquent insight or very eloquent expression to an insight into this aspect of not-self. Yeah? It's a famous poem of his. You may have heard it before. Uh, I'll, yeah, I'll read it to you. Hour after hour, day after day, we try to grasp the ungraspable, pinpoint the unpredictable. Flowers wither when touched. Ice suddenly cracks beneath our feet. Vainly, we try to track bird flight through the sky, trace dumb fish through deep water, try to anticipate the earned smile, the soft reward, even try to grasp our own lives. But life slips through our fingers like snow. Life cannot belong to us. We belong to life. Life is king. So I'll just read the last, last part of it again. It says, even try to grasp our own lives. But life slips through our fingers like snow. Life cannot belong to us. We belong to life. Life is king. That, that last phrase is the title of the poem, Life is King. So this is, I think, Sangharakshita, presumably giving expression to his personal experience of this mark of anatta. Anatta, which means we don't have control. We don't have control over our lives. But often that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to grasp our own lives. Uh, we try to make life belong to us. We try to bring life under our control rather than realising that we belong to life. Life is king. Life is the you know, the, the ruling uh, entity, as it were, that's not really poetically put, but that's, uh, you know, if we, if we can sort of give ourselves to life, uh, well, we'll let go of the sense of self that we spend so much time protecting. Uh, so I'm going to suggest that it's faith that enables us to let go. In this way, yeah. I think without faith, we can't fully really let go of our attempts to control life. Uh, John Keats, a famous, well, well known English romantic poet, uh, in one of his letters to uh, his brother, says, uh, 
something that is relevant here. He says, I mean negative capability. That is, when a man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. Yeah. So I think Keats is describing a certain quality of being able to be open to uncertainty. Mi- okay. He's, so he's coining a phrase, negative capability. He says, I mean negative capability. That is, when a man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. Yeah? So this term that he's calling negative capability, I think this is very akin to the quality of faith. I think if you have a sense of faith and trust in Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, in life you might say, then you can, uh, it's much more easy for you to be in this state of uncertainty, mystery and doubt. Without this need, he talks about it as an irritable reaching after fact and reason. In a way, that's the self trying to get, get some control again, trying to sort of grasp life, make some sense of it. Yeah? In a way, this comes back to uh, what I was talking about with Garava and reverence. Uh, Pamasambhava's phrase, I do not have, I do not know, I do not understand. That's very much what Keats is talking about here. So we've got this tendency to want to grasp, to want to grasp objects of knowledge, want to try and understand and uh, give a sort of a fixed meaning to things so that we can make sense of it. Uh, In a way, the Anatar teaching is, is, is encouraging us to drop that whole process. That is a process of the self. That is one of the ways the self is, is operates, yeah? trying to grasp and appropriate knowledge in order to overcome insecurity. So again, I was talking about uh, going for refuge and uh, that comes out of our, the insecurity sort of inherent in our existential situation. So Buddhism saying instead of trying to, you know, force some control, grasp our lives in some way, it's easier to do the other thing, to let go and be at ease with that fact that we are not in control. Yeah, there are, it's not chaos, the world is not chaos, it, is, uh, it, it, it operates according to conditioned co-production, to conditionality. Things arise on the basis of conditions. One can participate in that, and one can participate in that wisely, and one can uh, develop certain conditions rather than others, but you cannot control and grasp your life. Uh, So one of the things that that lack of ability to control does, uh, well, it's anxiety, isn't it? It provokes anxiety. If we can't control things... We're prone to anxiety. And in a way, that, that attempt to try and grasp and control, I think, is rooted in, in an anxiety, in an insecurity, in an uncertainty, in you know, uh, 
well, in, in those things. Um, so if we're going to be practicing any attempt to let go of control, we have to face up to and turn towards our anxiety. Faith to me is, uh, it is the great antidote to anxiety. Uh, actually in experience, this is in my own experience, to be able to be uh, with uncertainty and, and with anxiety. If I've got a faith in the outcome of things, well then I can let go, I can be with that anxiety rather than be driven by the anxiety. Uh, so I'll, yeah, I'll give a little bit of an example from my life. Uh, there was a period in 2013 to 2015, a period of a couple of years, where this is when I was emerging from a period of breakdown and uh, I didn't have any... Um, well, I was, I was homeless for that period, which doesn't mean to say I was literally moving one night to, you know, from one place to the next night to another place or that I was sleeping on the streets. But I didn't have any security of tenure. I didn't have a home. Uh, I didn't have a place where I, I had a certain sort of control on things. I was just sort of responding in a way to what life presented to me. Uh, partly this was brought about because of the breakdown. I didn't feel I could go back to... The breakdown was partly about my will breaking down and I didn't feel I could go back to grasping things and making things happen with my will. But I also chose to embrace that. I chose to be in that period without trying to fix something, trying to set something up that was going to give me a sense of security. Uh, and one of the things I realised in that period was... If you're going to live like that, you have to be able to be ultimately with any outcome. You know, you're not choosing the outcome. I wasn't choosing the outcome. Uh, so, to, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll give a, a little example of that. So, at the start of that period, I was actually on a three-month retreat at Gujiloka in the Spanish mountains. I didn't know what I was doing when that retreat ended, quite literally. I didn't have a place to go to. Uh, I didn't have a home, I didn't have anything like that. I got into the last month of that retreat and um, I sort of realised I couldn't leave it right till the last few days of the retreat to try and find out what I was going to do. So I got into the last month and in the first week of the last month of that retreat I thought, oh no, no, I've got to do, I've got to send some emails out to some friends or something to see what I might be doing when the retreat ends. Uh, so I did a I did a naughty thing on retreat, but I did actually log on and check my emails. And the top of my inbox, this is not having checked emails for over two months. The very first email in my inbox sent to me that very morning <laughs> was an email from Arya Parla, who was at that time the chair of Padmanoka Retreat Centre, and the email said. Uh, you know, would you be interested in coming and doing some gardening at Padmanoka? Uh, you bet I was. <laughs> um, but uh, there seems something incredibly fortuitous in that. 
if I had decided not to check my emails, he actually finished that email with, please do get back to me as soon as you can, things move fast at Padmaloka, as in somebody else might come up who might take that job. Uh, so that, you know, in a way there was, uh, well, well, life provided, something came to me. I, I ended up, I mean, that wasn't immediate, I, I ended up then having to, I went to Manny Raja, who's the chairman of Guhiloka, who's a good friend of mine, and uh, said, oh, you know, well, this has come up for a bit later, February of the, you know, three months away. And he just said to me, yeah, you know, he saw that in a way I was a little bit anxious and uncertain, and uh, he just said to me, well, why don't you stay here until then? So... Maybe it does happen like that sometimes. Maybe we get that kind of good fortune. But if you're going to practice like this, it's about uh, seeing what comes your way. You know, when you try to control, when you try through your will, you you try to make things happen, which is the way we generally tend to operate in life. Uh, actually, you close opportunities down when you do that. You you can miss things that might be there if you try to control. But one of the things that if you're going to be open, you, you have to be able to accept whatever comes your way. Yeah. So part of the art of this practice, there's a, a, a phrase that's come back to my mind today. I think it's from Naropa, but I haven't been able to check. I haven't got the means to check this at the moment. And he says, the great way is easy for those without preferences. Yeah. So the great way, I, presume he's, I, I think he's referring to the Mahayana, the, the Mahayana way of, of Buddhist practice. The great way is easy for those without preferences. I don't know what that does to you, but that just makes me feel quite, you know, so often we're going on our preferences, our likes and dislikes, our preferences and likes and dislikes, and trying to make our likes happen and our dislikes not happen. Yeah, well, quite a kind of basic fundamental level so he's saying well spiritual practice is easy if you drop all your preferences yeah but that's quite a big ask um but i think it gives a quite different understanding of what this moving into the experience of of anatar is yeah dropping all your preferences being able to be with things that you wouldn't normally like and wouldn't want to be with. You have to be open to, to that and to things that might work out. I've given you a couple of examples then of positive things, you know, Pamaloka gardening and Manny Rajas saying stay here, they were good things. But in order to be able to practice like that, you have to be able to be with things that, you know, you wouldn't choose. And that is quite a deep practice. And I think to do that, you need to be in touch with a strong sense of, of faith and, and shraddha. That, uh, anyway, faith in actions having consequences, faith ultimately in the Buddha, I think, and, and, and the way things are. But we'll come back to that more in, in the next couple of days as well. So, yes, faith, a strongly felt faith, enables us to be with this lack of control. Uh, be with the underlying anxiety that the attempt to control is is a is a way of getting away from. Yeah. So Maria's got a question again. No, I was I just wanted to share um, uh, what's it called? Uh, on the spiritual retreat, I went for quite 
some time ago about control and the teacher he said that you think you're controlling but you might just let it go because you find you think you're in a car by the steering wheel but you will anyway you will find that you're sitting in the back seat and the steering wheel is actually a toy and I, I like that as an image, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe we can all ponder this, you know, topic of control and lack of control and the anxiety that underlies the need to control, and you know, it's a good topic for us to be exploring. But this is this cuts right to the heart of what it means to go beyond the self, to transcend the self. You know, it's not just a sort of more cognitive or perceptual seeing through. It's about letting go in this way but even the language of letting go I think sometimes the language of letting go can be a little bit too on the um, how should I say kind of almost sentimental sort of side oh, I'm just, I, I can just let go of things the traditional language of letting go in Buddhism is nekama which is usually translated as renunciation which I think has a, a much stronger flavour to it and actually cuts to the quick much more. So I think we can talk about renouncing the self. Uh, I'll give you a couple of little examples. These are both questions, or, or the Buddha's response to questions put to him in the Parayana Vaga, the, the last chapter of the Sutta Nipata. Uh, and he says, in response to Jatukani, he says, Lose the greed for pleasure. See how letting go of the world is peacefulness. There is nothing that you need hold on to, and nothing that you need push away. Which is very much back to... Uh, if it is Naropa, you know, the great way is easy for those without preferences. But the word that is being, this is uh, Sadatissa's translation, the word he's translating, he says, see how letting go of the world is peacefulness. Letting go there is this word Nakama, Nakama, which is m more usually translated as renunciation, which I think has a deeper, I think it's easier to hear the language of letting go in a way that doesn't sort of challenge us quite so much. Can I leave questions till the end, rather than having too many... But do, do come back at the end, please. Um, and then there's another one where he's responding to Badravuda. He says, uh, There is, in taking things, a thirst, a clinging, a grasping... You must lose it. You must lose it altogether, above, below, around and within. It makes no difference what you are grasping at. When a man grasps, Mara stands beside him. So saying, there is in taking things, you could say that in taking control, trying to appropriate from the world in some way, there is a thirst, a clinging, a grasping. You must lose it. You must lose it altogether. Above, below, around and within. It makes no difference what you are grasping at. When a man grasps, 
Mara stands beside him. So again, this is coming back to the great way is easy for those without preferences. Yeah? It doesn't matter what you're grasping at, you must lose it. You must lose that whole uh, attempt to grasp, to control, to get what you want from life and avoid what you don't want. Uh, but yeah, so the language in those early texts is more of, of renunciation. But I think renunciation only really makes sense when, again, there is a sense of, sh- of faith already awakened. So just to bring that back to the traditional account of the Buddha's life, or Siddhartha Gautama's life, you know, he sees the three sites of the old person, the sick person, the dead person, and then the fourth site. And on the basis of that, faith arises, as we explored earlier in the week. And then on that basis, he goes forth. Yeah? So going forth without a sense of faith of something higher, it could just be, a, in a way, it could just be a slightly sort of alienating thing to do. Yeah? He does it on the basis of, of faith. He doesn't just, is it, otherwise it would be this kind of willed asceticist, asceticism, the willed sort of suppression of the self rather than a genuine expression of response to something higher, higher values. Okay, so and then I want to look another way we can, or another way that the self is talked about in Buddhist texts. It actually comes, there's a, in, I think it's the Savastavadin Abhidharma, but it particularly gets drawn out in the Yogacara teachings. And they talk about the self, there's a, a conate level of the self, or conate views about the self. Conate means born with. Uh, and then there's acquired views, views that we acquire through our life, through our upbringing, through our education. But the four connate views, or the four atmas, as they're called, uh, these are things that, in a way, they're, 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 they're fundamentally how we structure our experience and our, our being in the world. Uh, and you know, the traditional thing is they're, they're what lead us to take rebirth. Yeah, these these things they're born with us. They're not acquired in this life. Uh, and I, so they talk about this uh, this self delusion, atma moha, self view, atma drishti, self cherishing, atma sneha, and self pride, atma mana. And it's this last one. I'm not going to explore the others at this point in time, but I want to focus on this last one, atma mana. Uh, self-pride or sometimes translated as conceit. So in Buddhism, conceit is this sort of deeply ingrained tendency to compare oneself with others. Uh, All the time we're doing this, we're comparing ourselves with others. Uh, So there's a a deep sense of self-view here, but it's not just pride in the sense of inflation and seeing one as better than everybody else. Conceit can be comparing yourselves with others and seeing yourselves as better than them. Comparing yourselves with others and seeing yourself as worse than them or lower than them or less than them. Or it can be comparison of yourself uh, as equal to others as well. So there's these three conceits in Buddhism. I'm better than, I'm worse than, I'm the same as. 
they're all tied up with a self-view. And ultimately we have to go beyond this whole process of comparing ourselves, of gaining some sense of our esteem or our value or our significance by putting ourselves above other people, below other people, or on roughly the same level as other people. We just need to drop the whole lot. Yeah? Uh, so how do we work with this overcoming our pride? Uh, there's one very, very obvious way. Um, which is when we bow to the shrine. It's a very kind of uh, simple but actually fundamental practice. In Buddhism. But I don't think we make anywhere near enough of this as a practice. I think quite often when we bow to the shrine, it's just rather a casual, oh, you know, I'm just quickly acknowledging the, the Buddha's value and then I'll get on with my own thing. Bowing to the shrine, fully and deeply done, is acknowledging your own unenlightened state in front of the Buddha, realising that you don't have the answers, you are not in control of your life, uh, and you need guidance. I mean, I used the, the phrase the other night when I was describing the entreaty and supplication section of the puja, you know, begging for a teaching. If I think if we really understood our existential situation in relation to enlightenment, that would actually be a pretty natural thing to do. But we're so full of ourselves, we're so intoxicated with thinking that we know that we have the answers, or that we even have the, the power to, to, if we don't know now, that we've got the ability to find out and we will get the answers. We're, we're sort of intoxicated by ourselves in some way. So bowing in front of the shrine is a deep, deep practice of acknowledging I do not know, I do not have, I do not understand. And it's only when we really take that in that we open ourselves to the teachings of the Buddha. So yeah, it's, I, I, we, you know, perhaps it gets introduced to people when... Um, you know, I've been on, I've done introductory courses and you introduce people to the shrine and you know, you just say you're bound to the shrine. It's just acknowledging, you know, your your potential out there. Well, yeah, maybe it has that element too, but actually it's something far more profound than that. Yeah. Bowing to the shrine is giving up your pride, giving up your self-intoxication, your views and ideas and attitudes that yourself is somehow capable of sorting out your life, yeah, uh, getting your life the way you want it to be. So that's a very simple practice whereby we can work with this tendency of pride. There's another way that the Buddhist tradition describes of... Um, working with pride which is humiliation uh, we probably tend to think of humiliation as quite a negative experience uh, Buddhism talks about well I'll read you I'll read you the quote from the Diamond Sutra um, it's a famous, famous section from the Diamond Sutra one of the great Mahayana Sutras 
Moreover, Sabuti, the spot of earth where this sutra will be revealed, that spot of earth will be worthy of worship by the whole world, with its gods, men and asuras, worthy of being saluted respectfully, worthy of being honoured by circumambulation. Like a shrine will be that spot of earth. And yet, Sabuti, those sons and daughters of good family who will take up these very sutras and will bear them in mind, recite and study them, they will be humbled, well humbled they will be. And why? The impure deeds which these beings have done in their former lives and which are liable to lead them into the states of woe, in this very life they will, by means of that humiliation, annul those impure deeds of their former lives, and they will reach the enlightenment of a Buddha. So it's a longish quote. So he starts by just saying about uh, the sutra where it's been revealed and, and that spot of earth uh, being a shrine. So he's setting a devotional context. So he's revealing this sutra, the Diamond Sutra, one of the great perfection of wisdom sutras. Um, saying that it's worthy of being honoured by circumambulation. It becomes a shrine, this place where, where this sutra has been given. And then he says, but Sabuti, the sons and daughters of good family who take up these sutras and bear them in mind, recite and study them, they will be humbled, well humbled will they be. So he's saying, actually, if you come in contact with the perfection of wisdom, it's not some nice little bit of knowledge that you add on to yourself. Coming in contact with the perfection of wisdom demolishes your sense of self. That'd be one way to talk about it. It's like a, it's a diamond, uh, the diamond sutra, the diamond cutter sutra. It cuts through all your preconceptions, your ideas, everything. It just demolishes them. And that is humbling, deeply humbling. It's not like, ah, oh, I just, oh, I know a little bit more about Buddhism. I can add that to myself and appropriate it. The, the diamond sutra and the perfection of wisdom resist that attendance that you know um, tendency we have to appropriate them and then he says the impure deeds uh, that we've done in the past will be as it were brought to fruition by means of that humiliation your humiliation in front of the dharma is a purification of your unskillfulness in the past that seems to be what the buddha is saying here so sometimes you may have had this experience where uh um, yeah, well, no, actually, I'm gonna, I'll come back to that in a slightly different way in a minute. Um, so he says, yeah, it's that process of those deeds being being uh, brought to fruition. It's actually painful. Your unskillfulness from the past is brought to your attention. Uh, is a purification. Dharma practice is sometimes talked about. Like it, it accelerates the purification of your unskillfulness. If you have deep unskillfulness in your past, the Dharma will bring that to light. And that's, uh, in a way, spiritually, that's a positive process. You, you're not going to be able to escape the consequences of your actions in the past. They will come back to you, even enlightened beings. You know, there's a famous story of Moggallana, who, one of the prime uh, two chief disciples of the Buddha, fully enlightened being, who's killed... Uh, 
yeah, he's killed. He, you know, he doesn't die a peaceful life, and it's because of things he'd done before his enlightenment. So yeah, those things will come back to you. So that the, the speeding up of that process actually starts to free you uh, from the effects of that. It's a purifying process. And on the basis of that, uh, the Buddha concludes this section with, and they will reach the enlightenment of a Buddha. So the, the process of humiliation, purification of one's unskillfulness, will lead to you becoming a Buddha. Yeah? Uh, but again, I think this humiliation only works if one has faith. Otherwise, you take slights to yourself, you know, um, attacks upon yourself, things that cut at yourself, you're likely to just take them as a defeat in, a, in, in the ordinary sense, you know. And you just think, well, I'm going to get up and do a bit better. You, know, you come back with that sort of attitude. It's only with faith that one can take humiliation as something spiritually positive. So humiliation, this is a little bit like three, uh, shame and apotrapia, when we looked at the, the moral sense. It's something that's often experienced as painful, that is spiritually very, very positive. Yeah? So we shouldn't always equate the spiritually positive with what's pleasurable. Yeah? Sometimes things that are painful can be deeply, deeply positive spiritually. Uh, so again, maybe I'll, I'll just give an example. Uh, I've experienced quite a bit of humiliation <laughs> Uh, in my life, in the sense of you know things I've wanted to happen and I've been trying to make happen, not actually happening. I've not been able to make them happen, and that's pretty humiliating on a certain level. So uh, I had a very good example of this relatively recently. Last year, I was living at Adishtana, and uh, in myself, I wanted to stay living at Adishtana. And I wanted to move towards a, having a particular role at Adishtana. Uh, and I, you know, I, I put my case to the people there. Uh, and they said no. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's a simple thing, but uh, oh, it hurt. It hurt. I really wanted to be there. You know, I'd set up a strong motive and strong direction but more than that I had a whole sense of what my life was going to be about or the meaning and purpose of my life tied up with being staying there and um, taking on this particular sort of role and uh, I couldn't make it happen it wasn't under my control it wasn't under my power uh, I was told that wasn't the case and uh, yeah, it was very, very painful at the time. But actually, I had quite a few realisations. One of them was that I had this whole sense, like I say, of <laughs> my life was going to be made meaningful at some point in the future by me taking on this role and fulfilling all these things for the future. Uh, like my, my, my raison d'etre, my reason for being in this life was somehow tied up with some future goal. Uh, that I was projecting out. You know, this is all the processes of the unenlightened self. Yeah, I was projecting this out, uh, had a certain sense of ambition, a certain sense of wanting to do certain things, and probably to be seen a certain kind of way, and to achieve certain things. And 
the fact that that was sort of knocked back uh, made me realise how much I was justifying my life by something in the future. Uh, and actually it gave me the opportunity to drop that, drop that whole sort of projection of myself into the future, which again is what the self does. You know, we have a whole story. We have a story of ourselves in the past and a projection into the future. You know, that's all unenlightened. Yeah, that's not the workings of Anatar that the Buddha's talking about. But also in in kind of it was also quite visible, you know, to those around me that I wasn't getting what I wanted. <laughs> so there's you know there's the, there's a public element of uh, wasn't just humiliating for me in my own private world. You know, other people could see, and other people were saying no. So there was a sort of, you know, that wasn't too comfortable either, to be frank. Um, but then what's emerged out of that, through not getting what I wanted, I've actually ended up in a place, this unusual place called Nottingham, in the centre of England, that I had no particular connection with. I mean, I had, I'd been there once or twice, very briefly in the past. I'm now living there. And I tell you, I'm very, very happy to be living there. It seems to fit me uh, very well. I mean, who knows? There may be further humiliations down the line. But uh, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have chosen that. I, cu- I couldn't have chosen that. I, you know, in a way, I didn't choose it. I was, I, was, I was on that. I was choosing that in front of me. That's what I wanted. I wanted to be at Adistana doing this. And I couldn't make it happen. And actually what's unfolded in many ways, I think, ah, God, this is much better than that, isn't it? (laughs) Um, So there's something about taking humiliation when it comes uh, positively. Humiliation tells you something about yourself and it's letting go of that self that is going to bring a deeper sense of freedom. So don't see humiliation... Uh, as something negative in the you know it's 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 painful and difficult but spiritually it can be incredibly positive yeah um, and yes I'm going to finish with one final way that fits with this area of faith and self transcendence and I mean, this is something I'm going to come back to a bit more tomorrow and the day after as well or touch on. I'm going to explore another way tomorrow of how we can uh, go beyond the self from this more sort of faith-based perspective. But I just want to uh, talk about what's called the hearing wisdom. Uh, So we're talking about wisdom. Uh, The hearing wisdom is one of three wisdoms that uh, Buddhist tradition talks about. Some of you may be familiar with them. There's what's called the hearing wisdom, which is the Shruta Maya Pragnya. The wisdom of reflection or thinking, chinta maya pragnya. Pragnya is the word for wisdom. Chinta is sort of reasoning, reflection, investigation. And there's bhavana maya pragnya. Bhavana literally as in metta bhavana, but it's usually interpreted in the light of meditative wisdom. These three wisdoms are, are most usually talked about as an ascending series. So you need to hear the dharma take it in on a certain level, clearly and with full comprehension, so that you can then investigate it and think about it, reason about it, 
yeah, so that you can go into meditation with a clear mind and with right view, and that can bear fruit in the direct uh, transcendental experience of pragnya of, tra- of, of wisdom. Yeah, that's the normal way of talking about these three wisdoms. But there's another way of thinking about them, which Sangharakshita has drawn attention to, where they're, they're not three levels. The danger of that is that uh, you, you know we, we've all got a natural human tendency to want to go for the top, haven't we? You know we don't want to bother with those lower things. This is all part of our pride. We think, oh, I don't need to do the hearing wisdom or reflecting wisdom. I'm going to do the the meditating wisdom because that's the real thing. Um, but Sangharasha talks about there's three. There's just three ways in which wisdom can arise, not three levels or stages. Uh, and he talks about wisdom can just arise through hearing. Uh, so I'll give a, three examples of this because I think they relate very much to hearing with faith. Yeah? So there's the story about Bahir, Bahir of the bark garment. It's a very famous story from the Udana in the Pali texts, early, early teachings. Bahir is this... Uh, kind of holy man on the other side of India from the Buddha who uh, is kind of a bit inflated with his role as a holy man in the local village and he, you know, he's made lots of offerings by the local villagers. Uh, but then it comes a point where a deva, who is a deva, a, a god spirit or something, comes to him uh, and says, you are not an arahant, you are not one who has broken through Bahia. You need to go to... But, you know, there is one who has broken through. There is a Buddha and you need to go and visit the Buddha. Uh, and uh, although he might be a bit in, inflated with himself, he actually has enough good sense to take this. And he goes on a pilgrimage. I mean, if, if the accounts are right, he walks well over a thousand miles to meet the Buddha. Uh, and he... You know, so you have to imagine he's on a, a pilgrimage... Uh, pilgrimage is a kind of practice of faith, isn't it? Um, and when he comes to meet the Buddha, the Buddha is on his arms round, collecting food in the village. But Bahir is in, so intent on getting his teaching that he, he won't wait. Usually you'd wait until the Buddha had finished his arms round and come back uh, and then go and introduce yourself and maybe ask for a teaching. But he goes to the Buddha and says, you know, and asks for a teaching there and then. And the Buddha says, no, this is not the time, Bahir. Bahir is insistent. But give me a teaching, give me a teaching. No, this is not the time, Bahir. Asked a third time. Uh, and the Buddha just turns to Bahir, probably with the elephant gaze that the Buddha's known for. He turns his whole being towards Bahir and just says to him, in the scene, only the scene. In the herd, only the herd. In the cognized, only the cognized. Yeah. Uh, so early, early wisdom teaching, very much like the perfection of wisdom. And Bahia understands there and then. Yeah? He awakens just through hearing, in the scene, only the scene. In the herd, only the herd. In the cognized, only the cognized. Yeah? So he doesn't go away and think about it. He doesn't go away and do the Chintamaya Pragna. He doesn't go away having done the Chintamaya Pragna and meditate on it. He hears the Buddha's teaching and he awakens. Yeah? So this is an example of 
hearing wisdom. You know, wisdom can arise just through hearing the teachings. There's also the story of Hui Neng. Hui Neng's the sixth patriarch of the Chan or Zen tradition. <laughs> Hui Neng was an illiterate peasant uh, who was looking after his elderly mother and he was out wandering in the, the local market square trying to buy a faggot of wood uh, so he could keep his mother warm and cook food for her. Uh, and as he was out in the square, he heard a monk <coughs> reciting the Diamond Sutra, the sutra from which we heard that teaching about being humbled. And again, he just awakened. He heard the words of the Diamond Sutra and something happened. He awakened there, there and then. He didn't go away and think about it and meditate on it. It happened, yeah. Hui Neng in his autobiography, uh, he talks about it in terms of he must have had good karma from the past to be able to understand there and then. So he talk, talks of it in, in those terms, there's good karma. I think with Bahia, I mean, yes, perhaps he was a holy man, he had good uh, karma behind him, but he'd also been on this very focused pilgrimage, very strong sense of faith that he must have had to just walk a thousand miles across ancient India to receive the teachings, a strong sort of sense of faith. And then the other example I'll give is uh, Sangharakshita himself. He, in his memoirs, he talks about reading the, the Diamond Sutra. We've got a common theme here, haven't we? Uh, when he was 16. And the way he describes, so this isn't literally hearing, but it's reading, just taking in, the, the way he describes reading the Diamond Sutra uh, is that he realised he was a Buddhist and that he always had been. That's his way of describing what happened uh, when he read the Diamond Sutra. But again, he didn't read it and then go away and reflect on it and meditate on it. He, he recognised something there and then. So all three of these, I think what's happening, you know, we talked about faith in terms of... Uh, the intuitive aspect of faith, this plangency of the ultimate in us, this resonance of uh, Buddhahood in us, you know, resonating with Buddhahood when it's struck nearby us. You know, these, we had this image of the two instruments. If you pluck one, the other starts to vibrate. So in a way, that this is what seems to be happening in, in the hearing wisdom in these three examples. They, something resonates very strongly upon hearing the Dharma. But it's it's you know it's it's also something deep and substantial. Uh, you know, perhaps we've heard the Dharma and we have a you know a vague inkling of something which sets a direction for us. They hear the Dharma and know. So there's this notion of uh, sometimes you have this when people come to a Buddhist center, and after they've been coming for a while, you hear them say, uh, "Coming to the Buddhist center was like coming home." Yeah. It's this sort of language that you know we recognise something uh, kind of intuitively, yeah? and in a way, I think this is a faith-based approach. Yeah? So the, the 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 fact that we can just hear the truth, uh, so just listening to Dharma teachings again, it's not something we're doing so that we can uh, think about them, ponder on, work out how better we can apply a meditative technique or how better we can apply a precept to our life. It's actually the deepest in us trying to hear the deepest in the, in the world, as it were. Yeah? 
That's what we're trying to bring to when we hear the Dharma and hear the sutras read. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 